Welcome to a special edition of Museum Chat Live. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. We are thrilled to bring our hit virtual museum lecture series to the podcast. Now with over 30 lectures on YouTube, we're so happy to bring the lecture audio to the podcast format so that more of you can enjoy these fascinating stories and join in on the historical adventures. Coming up this winter, we'll release the audio for lectures on topics such as the history of the largest cemetery here in Niagara, Ontario's racially segregated schools, the Third Welling Canal, and much more. More lectures are headed your way this winter over on YouTube. You can join in live or catch the lectures on our playlist afterwards. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find us at St. Catherine's Museum, so you don't miss any of the fun. For more information on the lecture series, the impressive guest list, and the lecture topics, please visit stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, our podcast, and our programs, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Today's lecture features me, Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator here at the museum. In this presentation, I look at the research that goes into creating our annual guided spirit walks at Victoria Lawn Cemetery, and how dark tourism, like ghost walks, have influenced the practice of public history and the public's imagination of historical personalities. Enjoy the lecture. Imagine, if you will, a calm summer evening at a wonderful provincial park called Murphy's Point. Murphy's Point is about 20 minutes outside of Perth, Ontario, which is just west of Ottawa. Situated on the rocky outcrops of the lower stretch of the Canadian Shield, along the historic Rideau Canal, Murphy's was my first summer job, <laughs> the beginning of my career in historical interpretation, and my introduction to the Spirit Walk. The Spirit Walk at Murphy's was a great way to get campers to see the historic mica mine we usually gave tour, uh, a traditional tour of in a, in a new light. Staff and a few volunteers dressed up in some period costumes assumed characters that might have worked at the mine and presented scenes or skits to the audience along the trail that led down to the mine. There was the local farmer who worked at the mine as a supplement to his income there was the mine foreman, eager to present the mine in the best light to the visiting investors who were played by the audience. And of course, there was the red-faced bunkhouse cook, played by yours truly, who was on the hunt for one of the miners who stole his coveted potato whiskey. Oops, I'll leave that. Taking place at night, there's little Adrian there. <laughs> Taking place at night, the program was a special time for both the audience and the visitors. I have some special memories from the Spirit Walks at Murphy's. 
and some of the other parks where I worked. There's something about the power of a spirit walk that cements an attachment to place and an understanding and appreciation of history. If you, hadn't have, if you haven't had the opportunity to go on a spirit walk, either at a park, an old historic fort, or on our spirit walks at Victoria Lawn Cemetery, it is an opportunity not to be missed. If you have been on a walk, or maybe you've been in a walk, <laughs> uh, then you're familiar with which I speak, that there's something special, magical, memorable, relatable in the experience of the spirit walk that just isn't available or achievable in other forms of personal or non-personal interpretation. So tonight we'll explore a little of the history and theory of the Spirit Walk. And I'll take you behind the scenes of our own production, the annual Guided Spirit Walks at Victoria Lawn Cemetery. Let's start. <laughs> This is Arvin Romanoli, everyone, from last year's walks. This, this photo obviously makes me laugh. It's a good one. <clears throat> Let's start at the beginning. For those of you who haven't been on a spirit walk, ghost walk, or had any other experience with first person or third person costumed interpretation. A spirit walk usually features individual scenes or skits with, either a, with either, either a monologue or dialogue presented by first person actors or interpreters wearing period costume and portraying a historic person or sometimes a fictional character for the purpose of relaying factual historical narrative in an exciting, accessible and relatable way, usually organized into a walking tour of a historic site, a downtown core or a cemetery. There's a lot of confusion over what a spirit walk is because of the alternative interpretive form, the ghost walk. Traditionally, but not always, ghost walks are led by a guide, sometimes in period costume appropriate to the site they are interpreting and usually presented in third person or in the voice of the guide themselves rather than in a character. Ghost walks weave a spookier experience by combining factual history with ghost stories with the intention of giving the audience a thrill. Good ghost walks can be a valid form of interpretation if they rely on factual historical narratives to drive their presentations. A good example of this is one that I worked on. <laughs> For example, at uh, Bronte Creek Provincial Park, the interpretive staff has always, oops, okay. Um, for example, at Brawny Creek Provincial Park, the interpretive staff has always been costumed while interpreting the turn of the century Spruce Lane farmhouse. The house is located on the day side use of the park, or sorry, the day use side of the park, and the campground is located on the other side of Bronte Creek. So doing evening programs on the day use side of the park was always a bit challenging because all of the campers were on the other side. So we made a transition from the traditional spirit walk, which at that time, basically every park was doing a spirit walk, 
Uh, and it was difficult to describe, market, and produce without the experienced, uh, and uh, it was difficult to produce without experienced theater performers. And we transitioned to a ghost walk. The house has some paranormal energy, so it wasn't a difficult switch. But we didn't abandon the oil, oil lamps, costumes, and history of the building and farm. Instead, we paired the natural curiosity of ghosts with the beauty of the house in the evening to present an extremely popular and valuable interpretive experience for locals and campers alike. The ghost walk itself also pairs sort of Victorian, uh, Victorian beliefs and Victorian trends uh, around paranormal energy, including things like seances. While I'm a firm believer in the power of a spirit walk, there is a huge amount of evidence that costumed first-person interpretation of historical resources is one of the most accessible ways to tell stories and make emotional connections to the widest audience possible. For so many visitors comment every year on how they really appreciate watching and in this case, participating in local history. The tours make history come alive before your eyes. The tours make the complexities of history easier to relate and emote and appreciate. In other words, no other program can do for an audience and for a historical resource what this program can do. Unfortunately, <laughs> not everyone agrees with me. <laughs> Some traditional historians who may have already have, who may already have, uh, unfortunately, a, dis a distaste for public history of any kind, let alone a program so far from their own practice, are, for the most part, uh, the purists, for example, challenging the facts and the value of a spirit walk. I don't fault them for the challenges with spirit, which spirit walks present us public historians. They are certainly not the route for an in-depth examination which so many other sources of interpretation can provide. The performances are also to be taken with a grain of salt, since so much of uh, so much is up to the interpretation of the actor and or uh, and or interpreter and the reception of that material by the audience. There are numerous challenges, but those challenges do not invalidate the experience of a valuable and worthwhile interpretive form. A lot of research has been conducted on the validity, validity, impact, and value of spirit walks and ghost walks. In, uh, ghost walks. in 2010, studies of the ghost walks at Gettysburg were conducted and the results were very interesting. Established historians, interpretive staff, reenactors, and residents all responded quite negatively to the nighttime ghost walk through the village. The ghost walk wasn't an event organized by the National Park Service, nor was it necessarily a history tour. But analysis of the tour shows that it was factual and interpretive. So why weren't the established parks and history folks accepting of the tours? Robert Thompson wrote in his article about the study, quote, am I going to see a ghost tonight? Which is a fantastic title for an article. Uh, the following, quote, in Gettysburg, the ghost tour is contextualized as, a, as mere entertainment, a frivolous sideshow at an otherwise solemn and historical tourist destination. 
ghost walks are not uh, ghost walks are not serious insofar as they are not taken seriously by the residents, shopkeepers, and historians of Gettysburg. This can sometimes be the prevailing image for people when we talk about spirit walks, that there couldn't be anything cheesier or hokier or cringeworthy than witnessing this type of interpretive theater. And that makes it difficult for audiences to buy in and come out for a walk. And for others in the history profession to see the walks as valid, valid interpretive forms. The muddled nature of the terms spirit walk and ghost walk used fairly interchangeably in the United States especially doesn't help to distinguish between the two forms and the two somewhat very different experiences. Indeed, since the beginning, we've encountered challenges relaying information to some colleagues and indeed to the public that spirit walks aren't ghost walks. It's not spooky. It's not a scary ghost tour of Victoria Lawn. And every year we get a few people who arrive expecting a scary ghost story or a scary uh, ghost tour. Um, and they're not disappointed, but <laughs> it's not what they showed up for. We added guided to the spirit walk so that we could give the impression that it's a guided history tour, not a haunted tour. It's important to recognize uh, that the ghost walk, spirit walk, guided walk, whatever, comes in different forms and on a spectrum, all determined, of course, by the context of the location where the interpretation is taking place. A traditional ghost walk with the, with the encouragement of paranormal activity and a focus on entertainment might not be the best option for an active cemetery where folks are still mourning. But maybe such a ghost walk is better suited for a less personal space, like downtown or a historic site where the interpreters and the audience are less likely to impede on the memory of people who are most recently deceased. The spirit walks versus ghost walk debate is a challenging one because everyone has different experiences, views on mourning and death, and how history should be interpreted to the public. As I just mentioned, I land on the side that the location and the people being interpreted should determine the form uh, that the interpretation takes. Because not all historic sites are equal in their ability to host an interpretive experience like this. Challenges that accompany spirit walks are also a subject of debate, mainly the validity of first-person interpretation. First-person inter interpretation is generally a performance by an actor, performer, interpreter, who is assuming a character for the purpose of communicating some narrative to an audience. It differs from other types of representation in that it objects, uh, sorry, its object is a historical character or person created on an accumulation of facts. Sometimes the character is a true historical person like William Hamilton Merritt. And sometimes the character is a fictional representation based on the accumulation of data and facts, perhaps used as a device for moving the plot along or representing a wider group of people like the farmerette. On the other side of the same coin is costumed third person interpretation. Most people have experience if they've been to a history, uh, a living history house, a uh, living history site or a, a historic house site, that kind of thing. Most people have experience with costumed third person interpretation, 
here's a couple Adrian <laughs> photos uh, where I'm doing third person interpretation, even though it maybe looks like I'm in character. Uh, third person interpretation is when an interpreter is costumed but appearing as themselves, as a 21st century person with knowledge of the internet and pop culture. This is a much easier form of interpretation uh, for the interpreter <laughs> because as an interpreter, I can enforce rules like classroom management and tour management, that, that, that kind of thing, and answer questions more easily. I can make jokes and use pop culture references with the audience. I can talk about that cell phone that's ringing in the back, and I can talk about that plane flying overhead. As a first-person interpreter at a historic site, I can't really tell you how to get to the gift shop. What's a gift shop? First-person interpretation is inherently theatrical and performative. This requires interpreters who are willing and capable of adopting the theater form. Most of the first-person most of the first-person interpretation takes place in both historic sites and modern museums and isn't necessarily linked by location. The spirit walks are the ultimate realization of first-person interpretation as they are the most theatrical and most performative. As a sidebar here, there have been many heated exchanges in both academic journals and on social media about if first-person historical interpre interpretation is theater or a valid form of historical interpretation. And therefore, it cannot possibly be a pure form of theater, nor can it possibly be a valid practice of history. While there are many definitions associated with what makes theater theater and what makes history history, Usually theater and theatricality related to first person interpretation implies that there is a certain level of pretend or make believe attributed to it. Additionally, the scripted nature and rehearsed movements or blocking of this form of interpretation is inherently theatrical. Though I am sympathetic, I find it much easier to buy in and suspend my disbelief in a traditional theater setting than to see a character or historic person beyond the interpreter uh, portraying them. Sometimes it's really hard uh, to see the character and not the actor. And I expect most of our audiences have the same challenge, mainly because we're in a cemetery without a stage, without <laughs> lights and sets and that kind of thing. But again, first person interpretation requires at least, <clears throat> requires at least uh, simple acting, which involves simulation and impersonation, where some emotional work is required. It isn't conventional theater, and the presence of a fourth wall is usually very inconsistent, I'll admit. But without passing judgment on the quality of the interpreter or the actor, a first-person interpreter incorporates theatrical and performance elements to deliver complex performances of historical narrative. Along with the challenge of first-person interpretation as theater, or not, are the arguments of what first-person interpretation does to the audience's understanding and reception of the historical narrative itself. Are they hearing the narrative or did they focus on that bird flying by in the background? Are they hearing the narrative or are they distracted by some thread that's hanging down from the actor's sleeve? Are they hearing the historical narrative or are they focused on the joke that was just told? Like the ghost walks at Gettysburg, a lot of historians have a hard time accepting first-person interpretation because it is so often received as silly and unserious. 
How can first first person interpretation adequately tackle historical narratives without leaving out information, parsing down important contextual points, or overall misrepresenting a person or character being portrayed? And what if this is the audience's only experience with this narrative and this character? They'll leave with that being the form of that person in their heads. <clears throat> I agree that those are challenges, but those concerns don't invalidate the form. The form is a much more valuable way to interpret narrative because the audience receives historical narrative in a much different and arguably more receptive way than in other forms of interpretation. After all, the whole point of interpretation itself is to provide opportunities for the audience to forge emotional connections with our historical resources. A lot of non-history folks have a much easier time expressing sympathy or empathy with dear Ina Burgoyne reading her son's obituary aloud than reading the obituary themselves. Theatrical spirit walks can make a traditionally stuffy and unapproachable historical topics far more interesting, understandable, relatable, and accessible, encouraging participants to, after the tour, dig deeper into narrative they were previously unaware of. It's not perfect, but it's such a great way to start learning about our past. It's my hope, and maybe a lifelong goal <laughs> to keep presenting quality programming that interests and provokes audiences and contributes to us taking first person interpretation more seriously. I wanna get into the behind the scenes at uh, the Spirit Walks now that I've <laughs> given you a little mini essay on the validity of Spirit Walks. There is so much that goes in to putting a spirit walk together each year. And I think the best way for me to tell you about it is to give you a sense of the timeline and the production calendar from start to finish. And in this way, the tours really are a piece of theater because <laughs> I have a lot of theater experience. Uh, some of my colleagues do as well. And the easiest way to work with our actors uh, and other volunteers is to run it as closely as possible to what it would be like to run a production. But the additional feature here is that instead of just picking a play <laughs> and putting on the play, uh, we have to write the play and we have to research uh, all of the people who are going into the play. So it's a little bit more involved than, uh, than uh, I'm used to in the theater world. By the end of each Spirit Walk year, by the end of each Spirit Walk, we usually have a good sense in the direction and time period for the next year's tour. For example, at the end of 2017, uh, our tour about Confederation, we knew exactly that we wanted to go back to the stories uh, from the First World War as the anniversary of the end of the war approached. Even though we had covered the topic twice before, excuse me, in 2014 and 2016. Our topic selection usually revolves around the historical anniversary that year, though also it must meet particular requirements, which include interpretive value. Will there be op opportunities for us to make interpretive connections between the audience and the resource? The number of characters involved and cast available 
before or sort of during uh, research. Known research and primary resources available at the time. And it's got to fit within the museum's established interpretive and collection themes. Usually, uh, we won't do a tour um, set in the 1960s or to today. Uh, that also adds the additional challenge that a number of people might be still alive. And so the people that um, who remember the people that are buried. And so doing a tour in the 1960s would face the challenge that uh, public memory of these people uh, is still in sort of living memory. And so we usually try to stay away from uh, maybe interpreting people who are recently deceased or people who um, are still sort of um, fondly and actively uh, remembered in living memory in their families. Generally, our oh, I should mention here that I don't do all of this by myself. Uh, I couldn't, it's impossible, it's so much work. And so I just wanna recognize the teams, uh, the, the team members who have contributed to the Spirit Walks over the year. Uh, years, aside from all of our amazing volunteers, um, uh, a few staff, former staff members, I just wanna recognize Brittany Morgan and Meredith Leonard, uh, who all contributed to early scripts, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015. Um, and, uh, and uh, also I'd like to recognize uh, our public programmers, Sarah Nixon and Lauren Curtis, who have also writing most of the scripts <laughs> recently. Um, and uh, also I just want to recognize, and because she's watching tonight and in the chat, I just want to recognize our wonderful uh, summer student from last summer, Amanda Balick, who uh, did a ton of research. Last year's tour had a lot of really fresh research. Um, and so uh, it was really important that we had an extra set of hands working on the tour and the script. So again, I don't do this by myself. When I say I, I really mean we. Um, so there we go. Thank you to all of those people who are awesome. Um, and I've so enjoyed working with you all on the spir oh, Spirit Walks over the last few years. There's one person that I forgot and even wrote it down in my notes. And that's, of course, our curator, Kathleen. Kathleen is amazing, uh, part of our team for the Spirit Walks and is a really great um, sort of uh, editor in chief, I guess you could say, in terms of bouncing ideas off of uh, Kathleen and you know, um, I would love, I dream big. I, and I'm sure the audience won't be, um, won't be surprised that I dream big. I would love to have a horse as a part of the tour sometime because so many obituaries talk about horse-drawn uh, wagons with um, like carriages with the coffin on it on a procession from the city. And boy, oh boy, wouldn't it be great to reenact that. And <laughs> oftentimes I'm brought back down to earth, which is totally reasonable um, because we're not, <laughs> we're not gonna deal with a horse, but it would be really cool if we could. Anyway, dream big, everybody. Generally, let's talk about our research now. Generally, our research will reveal a theme to us. For example, the First World War in, tour in 2014, it was quite clear that patriotism and its consequences would be our theme. Enthusiasm for war left lasting impacts on our community. With Confederation, we knew that we wanted to cover both sides of the Confederation debates, but we didn't realize to what extent we would find support for both sides in the community. Our theme that year turned out to be, quote, 
the path to confederation was complicated by many perspectives which challenge our preconceived notions and celebrations of confederation and Canada today. It was such a great surprise to find that not everybody was on board with confederation in St. Catharines in 1867. Between January and April of every year, usually maybe even a little bit earlier, we usually do all of our research, uh, research gathering sources, materials, ideas, themes, character plot points um, together. And we sort of pour over our sources and just write ideas here, there, post-its, whiteboards, everything, and sort of start just throwing out um, topics and ideas and people and and sort of uh, themes, things like uh, a, a big thing that we try to look for is the female perspective, usually because uh, in a lot of the sources that um, that are available, they're sort of either left out or just not not included. At the beginning of April, we start crafting uh, what the tour experience will be like. There are so many considerations that go into crafting a spirit walk. So it's not easy. And I just wanna draw all of this together for you. So here's some considerations when you're, if you're gonna do a spirit walk in the cemetery. How long is the tour? How long will each stop be on the tour? Who and what characters or persons will be featured on the tour? Where are their headstones? How long a walk is the tour? So you have like scene length, and then you have walking length. You put those two together, are you within an hour? Does the tour stay on the cemetery roads or does it go in the grass? Because that's a huge consideration, especially for accessibility, but also the cemetery um, isn't 100% flat ground, flat grass everywhere. And there's lots of divots and there's some groundhogs living around. And so there's holes and things like that. Um, since one of the major points of the tour is to visit the actual headstones, the actual headstones or gravestones of the people we are talking about, what is the burial location of the desired historical persons? Are they near each other? And can we perform, or sorry, can we form a route between them? Another challenge is that we may get close to a headstone, but maybe the headstone is like way in the middle of the field and it, take, it would take way too much time to get to the middle of the field. So we just stay on the road and put a lantern beside the, the gravestone. Does the tour route maintain the narrative arc and the tour theme when scenes and sub-themes are assigned? Because sometimes there's been a couple of tours where we haven't had a narrative arc, but then we've been, had other tours where the narrative arc is super important to each scene. So if you just kind of do this with your locations, then you run the risk of sort of um, ignoring that arc and we want the whole experience to be memorable because people are only going to really remember so much. And um, so we want people to sort of get a really easy sense of what our take-home message might be. Do we have the, his, uh, the sources for each historical person to be able to write a scene? If not, what supplementary sources could we use? Do we have the actors to play the historical person? Or do we need an actor to portray a substitute character? Uh, or do we need a substitute character for an actor? Uh, mother, daughter, husband, father, some close relation that can talk about the person that we're talking about. What time period is the tour taking place? And do we have the budget and the resources to create costumes and props for that time period? Some time periods are easier, especially for men. Uh, some time periods are easier for costumes than others. Um, for women, it's 
it's a different style every year, basically. But so that's, it doesn't matter because we're going to have to maybe create new, new costumes anyway. But, um, you know, do we have the resources to do that? At this point that I should, I should note that again, most of the work is happening all at the same time, or at least within the same time frame of work. So it isn't as orderly as I'm describing as much as I would like it to be. Research always reveals more than I'm prepared to work with. For a first World War tour, 2014, 2016, and 2018, the sources were so plentiful that we had to cut and trim both source material from the walk and later we spread them out over the three tours. A fun note is that I've treated William Hamilton Merritt, who is credited with building the first one canal, a bit like Pokeroo. And hopefully everybody's a millennial or older like me who remembers Pokeroo. As important as he is to, not Pokeroo, as important as William Hamilton Merritt is to our city's history, he has never been included in a tour. Never. I've never put him in a tour. His son, Thomas Rodman Merritt, has appeared. His granddaughter, Catherine Wellen Merritt, has appeared but Merritt himself has never appeared. He's so often talked about, um, and I've, but I've never written him a part for him or casted an actor to play him because, well, at some point he may make an appearance and I think most people, but I think most people would rather hear about him uh, or historical topics from the perspective of others uh, that are less famous. Merritt's story is told in so many ways and places the least of which is our own museum. And so the, the walks should really be an opportunity for us to look deeper in our history and beyond the more, the more famous folks from our past. So many people buried at Victoria Lawn. We don't really need to visit William Hamilton Merritt, but you never know. I kind of enjoy leaving him out just because it's that kind of like pokeroo feeling, um, but you never know, he might make an appearance someday. Maybe he will. Geography in Victoria Lawn can be very difficult. And I'm sure if you tuned into Adam's talk last, uh, or two weeks ago, you can view Adam's talk, by the way, in our playlist for lectures. Uh, you'll note that geography is really hard because it's an enormous cemetery, uh, also with a major regional road traveling through it. So the geography can be really difficult for us putting the tour together. Usually, if they are important to the history of St. Catharines, though, I mean, what we would consider as sort of classic historical narrative for St. Catharines, they're likely to be buried at Victoria Lawn and in the old section, but that's not always true. So the old section is south of Queenston, and the new section is north of Queenston. Um, the, so it's a big place, though, and uh, we can only cover seven to eight stops in an hour. So maybe nine, and that's pushing it. So I would note here again that we can't just keep adding stops to the tour as much as I would love. An enjoyable spirit walk tour, I think everyone would agree, is about 45 minutes to 50 minutes. Usually, from my experience watching the audience, at the 45 minute mark, the audience has had enough and they get very fidgety. It also happens to be the time when the mosquitoes come out and standing for 45 minutes is, is, can be a lot if you're not used to doing it. Um, so in our virtual tour this year, we were able to include all the scenes, basically 16 scenes, mostly because most of our audience was likely watching from their couches or, you know, sitting down in front of a computer or a TV at home instead of swatting those dreaded mosquitoes. 
I usually begin my research by looking through the book Historical Profiles from Victoria Land Cemetery. We also have a couple of books of compiled obituaries from St. Catherine's Standard and some other St. Catherine's newspapers from the Victorian period, which really help sort of give a biography of, um, of the, uh, the people who are buried there. And then it's sort of a jumping off point to look into some things about how I'm gonna write them and what themes, and maybe they were this person and they did this. And so maybe they talked about this and that kind of thing. In 2017, we had a most tricky time uh, because most of the tour involved the ruling class. And most of those people are buried in section P um, of the old section of the cemetery. So section P you can see here is where 513, 4, and 3 are. Over here, close to Emmett Road, this is where uh, the merit, most of the merits are buried. And uh, so you can see the challenge here uh, just by looking at our colored arrows for the route. Um, an enjoyable tour moves around the cemetery because of course people, people are there for the spirit walk, but people are also there to see the cemetery itself. People like looking at the stones um, and so on and so forth. So to see only one part or one tiny part of the cemetery isn't as satisfying. So we try to hit as many different sections as we can. But in 2017, we were stuck in one place and we had to go up and back the same road, something we try to avoid. The reason was that we needed to visit the stones in a particular order as well to support the narrative arc. So in this case, I chose narrative arc over the perhaps the um, the walking experience. Um, for this narrative arc, it was visiting the angry J.G. Curry, who's against Confederation, uh, after, and because he needed the last word, after visiting James Ray Benson, our first senator, uh, when he gave his perspective. So it's really important for Curry to be able to respond, but we had to go see Benson first and then come back to see Curry. So this is where things get a little bit more theatrical. This is where the magic happens. At this point, we found all our source material. We know the locations of the scenes and headstones, and we have the theme that we can write towards. I'm so excited to be able to share some of my favorite scenes with you, and additionally, maybe do a little bit of a scene study. This is super nerdy. I hope everyone's okay with getting super nerdy with me. Um, so additionally, a lot of our other favorites are now on YouTube because you can watch the entire production of this year's Spirit Walks, which we took virtual and we picked favorite scenes, our 16 sort of favorite scenes um, and turned them into a virtual Spirit Walk on YouTube. So you can watch the whole thing if you haven't seen it yet. All right, let's get started. I hope everyone is good with a little bit of scene study. We're going to uh, get started with conflict. The best drama, in my opinion, comes from conflict. And so if I can write a conflict between two characters, it's more enjoyable and emotional for the audience. We don't know if this meeting ever happened. So the meeting is fake, it's fictitious. But Curry wrote, uh, sorry, James, uh, John G. Curry, sorry, wrote ceaselessly in local papers denouncing Thomas Rodman Merritt's pick of James Ray Benson as the local representative for the Legislative Council replacing Curry himself after he resigned uh, over the Confederation debates in 1866. So I took his words from the newspapers uh, in 1867, as you can see here, and uh, I took Benson's nominations papers filed by Thomas Merritt, Robin Merritt, and crafted it into this scene uh, where the newspaper argument they were having basically, and they were writing back and forth, basically comes to life. So instead of sort of having that that conversation in the newspaper over a period of weeks, 
I moved it to the Welland House Hotel and made it a scene where they were having drinks. Uh, uh, Louis Shigluna, uh, who was a national shipbuilding tycoon at the time, uh, was never listed in the nomination papers, but the location of his grave and his involvement in local politics at the time made him an easy inclusion on the tour. So he was kind of there to break up the fight. So there's a little bit of theatrical piece there, but the, uh, the, the foundation of the scene is factual and historically accurate. Another great one is the Olive Weller diary. Olive's diary is a great example of my decision to ignore all of my own requirements because the source itself is just perfection. Her diary details her escape from Germany at the start of the First World War. Since the Wellers aren't buried at Victoria Lawn, I had to use someone else who went on the trip with them and appears in the diary. In this way, I had another historical person speaking the words of her friend, but Miss Merritt, Catherine Welland Merritt, who is portrayed by Brenda Schultz, excuse me, was on the trip and experienced all the same dramatic events. And so she was able to tell us about them. Um, by Olive's account, actually, Miss Merritt was always quite dramatic on the trip, especially after they were trying to escape. One scene I've had in my head for a long time is the idea that there is a guide or a character who uh, starts the tour without any context. I love the idea of dropping the audience into a tour without context, just sort of saying, go. Uh, this character could be anyone. But early on, I saw him as a cemetery manager who likes music. Maybe he's sitting under a tree and begins the tour in song. That's an idea for a long time from now. I haven't had the opportunity to use that idea, but I have stretched it with the beginning of a couple of tours. And my favorite for sure is the newsboys who come out shouting headlines as if selling newspapers to give the audience the context they need before starting the tour. It's straight exposition, but delivered in a fun way that features the historical resources themselves. And it's a huge surprise for the audience. You can see some smiles here in the audience's faces. So Paperboy One comes in and says, extra, extra, well and canal to be enlarged. Uh, detailed plans announced this summer, cost 45 million. So, uh, and on, on you go. Each of those are actual headlines from the St. Catherine Standard. And it sort of gives you, after you've heard all of the, um, all of the headlines, it gives you a sense of what the tour is gonna be about. Another example, here's another Adrian picture. I'm sorry, this is the Adrian show. Um, another example is my own performance as the guide in the 2018 tours. Dressed as a First World War captain, the guide spoke only in poetry that was written and uh, during and after the First World War. The effect worked perfectly. Emotional weight and context was provided to the scenes and the poetry itself acted as punctuation, especially familiar po poems like Anthem for Doomed Youth by Wilfred Owen with the first dramatic line, what passing bells for these who die as cattle, uh, or hearing the poem, uh, sorry, or hearing the entire poem of For the Fallen by Lawrence Binion, since we're all so familiar with the one stanza, they shall not grow old as we who are left grow old, so on and so forth. So there's lots more to that poem. So the audience got to hear that whole thing, but that one stanza is in the middle and boy, oh boy, did people get shivers when they heard that one part. 
The challenge of this part, of course, was that since the guide only spoke in poetry and then went, walked away and stood at attention next to the gravestone uh, of the person we were interpreting, um, he couldn't otherwise interact with the audience. So I wasn't able to encourage them to gather closely or walk this way or look out for that hole or hurry up or slow down or whatever. Um, so we had to have a little helper um, who could do the logistics work for him. And at this time, I just wanna thank those helpers, um, uh, Doreen Haywood. Hi, Doreen, I don't know if you're watching, but Doreen has been a, a cemetery um, tour manager for a long time. And it's always great having Doreen around. And I think our pal Megan Lamoth was also, uh, oh no, no, you, Megan, you joined on last year, that's right. It all blends together. Anyway, we really appreciate all of our behind the scenes uh, volunteers who I'll talk about in a few minutes. There's a whole slide dedicated to them. <laughs> Another great example of using a primary source is the script material uh, of the, uh, sorry, for script material is the obituary of Teddy Burgoyne. We didn't have an actor to play Teddy. So instead we cast Rochelle Longton to play his mother and had her reading the obituary from the newspaper as if for the first time. It was incredibly moving and uh, likely more impacting uh, for the audience than if Teddy himself had arrived to tell his own story. You can watch this uh, scene on YouTube now because it's included in the playlist. A fun and funny part of creating the tours is coming up with a reason the spirits have appeared in the first place. Why are the spirits even here? How did they get here? Who are the spirits? Are the spirits actually spirits? Uh, are they ghosts? What does this mean? And so uh, it's really fun to sort of create a premise for the spirits to actually be in the cemetery and talking to us in the first place. It requires all the suspension of disbelief uh, on my part and on the audience's part. And sometimes I have a really good reason for the spirits to be there and sometimes I just ignore that and we just have to suspend our disbelief. But usually the audience is very forgiving and they will, uh, they're will they willing to go along with uh, whatever you'd like them to believe. In this example, we've set up a cast to start the tour as if they are all on their way to the celebration of the new dominion, July 1st, 1867. And our tour guide, also a spirit, comes along at the end of the parade to pick up the audience and decides to show them, decides to show the audience how we in St. Catharines got to this point that we just saw. So everyone's on their way to the celebration, but before we get to the celebration, which was at the end of the tour, uh, we sort of have to do this little rewind and through the tour, we see all the actors and their reactions to Confederation. Um, this element of spirit versus character versus, versus historical person versus first person interpretation presents a challenge for what to do about the fourth wall. Shout out to the fourth wall. For those of you unfamiliar, unfamiliar, the fourth wall is usually the invisible wall of the stage between the audience and the actors. Uh, the other three walls being the real physical walls of the stage. So I'm sure everyone can think of a movie or a TV show where the actor turned to the camera and addressed the audience breaking the fourth wall. Well, we have the same challenge in the spirit walks. Do the spirits know they are being watched by an audience? Can they interact with the audience? Do they notice that the audience is dressed differently than them or not? And usually that depends on two things, whether it's a monologue or whether it's dialogue. In this example, 
We have two scenes from 2018. The one on the left was a classroom scene with two students and their teacher, Eliza Fitzgerald. The scene maintained the fourth wall to give the audience a sense of being a fly on the wall. The one on the right is our pal, Brittany Morgan, uh, playing Bessie Mullick, trying to raise funds for the Victory Loan campaign. In her efforts, she basically tears down the fourth wall, bursts through it like the Kool-Aid guy, uh, by accosting the audience as to why they aren't doing more to contribute to the war effort. Bessie's scene follows the Fitzgerald scene so as to add effect since the audience wasn't expecting that ambush. So you go from full out theatrical scene with the fourth wall to being bombarded by one of the spirits. Generally, I have tended to protect our actors from breaking the fourth wall because the nature of spirit walks has the audience very close to the actors. And this is even scary for me. Additionally, the nature of wa a walking tour encourages some to ask questions of the characters. And generally, that's not the type of tour that we go for. So most of the time, the guide is aware of the audience and, the manage and manages the audience's questions, except for that one time in 2018. Um, so they manages the, manage the audience's questions and logistics, while the actors, if they break the fourth wall, interact only with the guide. So I try to keep that interaction sort of inside some sort of maybe fourth wall curtain rather than a wall. Um, so that just to sort of protect the actor and this, the sanctity or like their ability to deliver the script in a timely fashion from being asked questions from the audience, which would, which is fine, but it interrupts the, the story and then the length of the tour if it's is actually quite finely tuned to a time, or sorry, quite finely timed. And so sometimes we don't have time for questions. So this way too, the guide inadvertently becomes sort of the medium Here's another sort of why are the spirits here, the medium by which the audience is interacting with the spirits in the first place. And so when the guide is a character themselves, we're able to more deeply appreciate the fact that the narrative might be the full picture or maybe just a story, since we're seeing it through the perspective of a particular person and their own experiences. In this example, I uh, was without enough male identifying characters to play private done. I didn't have enough um, folks. So, but I also wanted to show the immediate effects of the loss of someone serving on the home front. Uh, this was a, a scene from 2016. Um, and since, since their contributions to the war effort are sometimes overlooked because their contributions were made on the home front. So I used this news article from the death uh, for uh, for the death of Private Dunn for exposition of what happened uh, through the voice of his sister, and then a couple of sources and some of my own words constructed the emotional uh, the emotional script that the mother um, maybe and other mothers of soldiers would have been feeling or would have would have maybe felt at the loss of a child. So their arrival to the tour group from Dunn's funeral places an immediacy of emotion in front of the group that the group can't avoid. Casting is an extremely tricky business, of course, with a spirit walk in a cemetery. I've already mentioned a couple of times that we sometimes lack uh, 
specific gender genders and actors. So we have to consider when the scene is taking place, both in a year, but also in relation to the person's age, that kind of thing. So when it doesn't work out, we go with plan B and substitute the character for someone else, uh, maybe a relative or a friend who can then carry the narrative for us. In this case, uh, we had a little fun with it and pointed out this to the audience with the feisty, feisty Saffronia Norris complaining to the audience that they had really uh, just uh, come to see her husband, James Norris, and his business par partner, uh, and also her brother, Sylvester Nealon. This scene is hilarious and it is available on YouTube. Um, but one favorite line from this 2013 tour was, um, you know, listen here, John, I led an interesting life, a very interesting life. It's just being a lady of the Victorian period here in St. Catharines, not a lot of people wrote about me. You must understand how offending that is. Makes me and all Victorian women seem lazy. Anyway, it's very entertaining. Um, the experience of soldiers, again, serving on the home front as part of the Welland Canal Protection Force was generally pretty boring according to the sources. The force was established to protect uh, public works like bridges, power generation stations, and, well, and the Welland Canal. But the men who staffed it never really saw any real action. The men themselves were mostly those who were unfit to serve overseas for whatever reason. And so many famously got themselves into trouble here or there. Uh, but I didn't want to portray the entire force as troublemakers. Uh, so I used two young men who served on the Welland Canal Protection Force uh, and are buried next to each other, uh, which uh, is is a rare a rare occurrence. Um, buried next to each other in the cemetery to convey the more sort of unofficial aspects of service in Niagara during the First World War. The result is a fun look at some of the trouble that was caused by these soldiers without painting the soldiers themselves as troublemakers. Uh, and in this scene, we were talking about one of the uh, commanders who wrote frequently in one of the um, one of the books. Oh shoot! I think Kathleen's in the chat. Kathleen, what's the book called where they write when they get in trouble? Anyway, you can see here, Lieutenant Colonel Monroe wrote up a lot of people, and so we used him as sort of the uh, disciplinary leader of the of the unit, and sort of, oh my gosh, we better hurry back, or Colonel Monroe is going to write us up. I, it's right on the tip of my tongue. I can't remember what the name of the book is. Defaulter's book. That's what it is. It's the Defaulter's book. Okay, great. I still have not been able to... Uh, thanks, Kathy, if you get there. Thank you. Um, I still have not been able to find her speeches, but we do have an article she wrote in uh, 1895 called Women as Wage Earners. And of course, I'm talking about Lillian Phelps, one of my favorite historical characters from St. Catharines. In this article, Women as Wage Earners, she advocates for equal pay for women in the workplace. The book of articles was published by a leading member of the temperance movement, and many of the articles deal with uh, temperance issues. At one time, a president of the National Women's uh, Christian Temperance Union, I, uh, she basically, I, I took a speech that uh, was made by another president of the WCTU and mixed it with local news with Lillian's own words from her articles and some other speeches to form this particular speech. So all of the words are primary source, but they're not all from the same source. Most of them are Lillian's, but there's, they're supplemented by 
news articles about the specifics from the Welland Canal um, and also specifics about uh, sort of, sorry, um, more sort of uh, current temperance speak, if that makes sense. But one of my favorite lines is men have, to, and Brenda Schultz who portrays uh, Lillian Phelps deliver, delivers this line excellently. And again, this is another scene that you can see in our YouTube playlist. Um, men have developed the monster by which they are now slain. They have carved the image with head of gold and feet of clay and arms of molten steel. They named it civilization. And today in every nation, they are writhing in its grasp. It's just, how can you not include that in a spirit walk? It's inherently dramatic and it's delivered perfectly by Brenda. Uh, Boyle, Richard Boyle, Constable Richard Boyle, uh, his script was combined from all the newspaper articles that I could find about him because he was heavily involved in investigating criminal activity along the canal. I then put him right into the middle of the, these investigations uh, to give the content immediacy. So rather than sort of um, have him tell us about them as something that has happened, kind of, he's in the middle of investigating them. So he didn't say these words, but he was leading the investigations and was involved in the cases. So to add to the effect, Boyle's scene was directly, sorry, directly followed Lillian Phelps so the audience was well briefed about the dangers of alcohol uh, on the Welling Canal worksite. Another challenge was with Boyle was that he is buried, excuse me, is that he's buried so far away from Lillian Phelps, who's very, very, very West, like literally probably the most West headstone uh, in the old section. And Boyle is closer to Emmett Road on the East side. So it's, probably a 10 minute walk with a group to get there. So that's really, really far. Um, and so what we did, uh, we ended up having it work out quite well is that um, his spirit was out and about uh, investigating things. Uh, so he's working on his investigations and so that when he came upon the tour or he, uh, sorry, when the tour came upon him or when he came upon the tour, we had a good excuse for him to be very far away from his burial place. So that that worked out really well. Um, and I, again, this is another scene you can see on our YouTube favorites uh, because so Ian does a fantastic, this is Ian Ashman, does a fantastic job at uh, portraying Boyle and investigating the audience. You can see it in this woman's face that he's just asked her. <laughs> where she's been. You there! Where were you on the evening of September 12th, 1915? In many cases, female characters have limited sources available to them, as we've mentioned. Bessie Mullick was president of the Imperial Order of the Daughters of the Empire during the First World War and led many clothing and food drives and fundraising campaigns. That's all I could find about her. She's in, she has a chapter in the history of the women of St. Catharines, and that's it. Um, her daughter, Gwendolyn Mullock, was the first practicing female doctor in St. Catharines, and there's little information about her too. In fact, the only photo that we have of Gwendolyn here in the museum's collection is a photo of her team, her basketball team photo, in which she's uh, from university, when she's at the University of Toronto. Um, she's in the back row of the team photo, and that's the only photo that we have. Um, 
anyway, so I had Gwendolyn uh, relay the experience and work of her mother during the war. And in a bit of comedy, I had Bessie relay an essay, an op-ed uh, about early rationing among urban ladies. And uh, she likely never said these words and I'm sure she was very kind. Um, and she may not have even uh, sort of agreed with these words, but in this case, the historic actions of the character allowed for me to use the source that was perfectly worded for the purpose that I had in mind. And Irene does a fantastic, this is Irene and Jessica. Uh, in our YouTube video, um, Gwendolyn is portrayed by Tristan Tompkins. And uh, of course, Irene makes her uh, reappearance as Bessie. Um, and there's just this great delivery that she does to all of these sort of words you can see in this op-ed. This is from the Toronto Globe at the time just chastising really the urban women who are ignoring the war effort and sort of going about their daily lives. And so this great, I love these lines, things like only to do without beef and bacon on two days of the week and to substitute the largest possible percentage of oatmeal and so on. And then, um, you know, uh, buy no clothes, whatever that are not absolutely needed for protection. No mind, never mind savvy shoes, clothes, hats and furs. Wool is so scarce that may be a great difficulty keeping our defenders warm. Possibly a single unnecessary suit or overcoat may mean frozen limbs for one of your own loved ones. Uh, those knitted jerseys women have been mad over may mean one of our heroes pneumonia, rheumatism, tuberculosis, and so on. Uh, like the use of poetry in the 2018 tour, we used some music from the First World War era to help the audience forge more uh, a more of emotional connection and appreciation of the people they were hearing from. Almost every scene had some famous piece of music performed uh, by myself along with the lovely uh, local violinist George Cleland and uh, also Lisa Fochberger on the cornet. The effect was very rewarding and again brought context uh, to the famous and recognizable songs of the First World War down to our local level. Early on, I was almost too focused on the exposition. And that's a challenge with um, Spirit Walks is that the script can often be just exposition. Like, hi, my name's Adrian. I'm the visitor service quizzes coordinator at the museum. I was born in this year, I do this. Rather than let's, you know, like have a, a theatrical presentation of, of a narrative, right? So that's one challenge with Spirit Walks is that, especially early Spirit Walks, it ends up just sort of being spewing out textbook rather than a perform an emotional performance that sort of makes the audience feel something. So in the early days, I was really focused on the exposition. That's just an experience thing with writing. And so sort of delving into a textbook uh, through a character. I think that I forgot about the importance of provocation in scenes like this. I thought I knew it was boring. And so I knew it was boring. And so I used comedy instead to compensate and uh, to lighten up some of the more expo expository and fact heavy scenes. It may not accurately represent, uh, represent the character, but usually the audience, um, audience appreciates a lighter scene between heavy ones and will forgive a non-factual portrayal to hear facts presented in a palatable way. So there's sort of like, would this person ever say this? No. Are these facts accurate? Yes. Is this an enjoyable scene? Yes. Is it interpretive? Yes. Is it still historically appropriate and accurate? Yes. But I just love 
this conversation between Gertrude and Chauncey. Chauncey Yale was a huge uh, sort of very early agricultural manufacturer. He made tons of parts and stuff like that, um, like farm equipment. And he's talking here about his sort of experiences. And so by 1854, 1854, Gertrude? Yes, dear, 1854. And so they go on and it's very comedic between the two actors. It's often that I can't include what I what would be the perfect person for a tour because of their geography. It's a big cemetery. And in a couple of cases, I've had to sort of say, I can't, we can't get the audience out there. And so they're off the tour this year, which is really, really unfortunate. It happens every year. And maybe if we get hoverboards or something like that, some sometime 50 down, 50 years down the line, we can hover quickly between the whole cemetery. <clears throat> um, Mayor Thomas Burns, who was mayor in 1867, was one of these people that we had to cut. Uh, I wanted to include him, naturally he's the mayor, but the source material also didn't have much to add uh, to the celebration of the debates. And his headstone is located really far away from the main tour route, as I said. So in the script example, I made him the scapegoat uh, for everything that went wrong with the plans for the celebrations, uh, including the missing strawberries. Uh, which someone else actually ended up eating, but um, you know we're going to blame blame the guy who can't be there to defend himself. Which is a lovely sort of through line comedy uh, that we keep coming back to. Um, so, for example, Mary McClive says, "At this time, I would like to invite Mayor Thomas Burns to read the official proclamation of Canadian Confederation." He's not here, <laughs> and that just—it's a fantastic rea reaction. Uh, and and so it probably isn't factually historical. Uh, the mayor was probably there at the celebration in Montebello Park, but his scapegoatness was uh, clearly a comedic device presented for laughs to the audience, and they knew that uh, we were kind of being silly about it. It's rare that I need to use fiction to relay a message or theme in the tours because I really try to find source material to fit into our theme. In the case of the men killed at the front, it's really difficult to include most of them uh, at the front in France, sorry, is what I meant, or in Europe. Um, it's difficult to include most of them, if not all the time, or all of them, because they were buried overseas. And so we have that, so if we have that kind of restriction where their headstone has to be a part of the tour, then we can't really include them in the tour. So including a story to achieve uh, this feeling of, uh, so I, I, sorry, I included this story to achieve uh, s sort of the, the feeling of two types of brotherhood, conflict over patriotism and the call to war, which until recently was highly romanticized. So I decided to invent two fiction, fictional brothers. These are fictional characters. They do not exist in the cemetery. Um, and we just named them Matthew and James. No, Joseph, I think Joseph. And um, so we see these two brothers at multiple stages, two stages throughout the cemetery tour. We, we come back to them, they're traveling. And so they kind of meet us in different places throughout the tour. And uh, we see the enlistment of the older brother. And then at the end of the tour, the younger brother is informed of the death of his older brother. And that really brings home the take home message of that, of that year, which was um, sort of the patriotism over the great loss. So the older brother was gung-ho and off to war, and then the younger brother questioned uh, that sort of patriotism. Uh, it was a uh, super emotional, worked really well, definitely historically accurate, but it was entirely fictional as 
as if it was presented through these two characters. I already mentioned a little bit about the casting challenges we sometimes have, but the main thing is that we work with volunteers. Volunteering is, uh, for Spirit Walks is a long-held tradition across multiple cultural sectors, so there is sometimes a question about paying our actors, and while I wish we could pay our actors because they're all amazing and they certainly deserve it, they work hard and take their craft seriously. Uh, they also participate in uh, because it is a source of enjoyment for them. In a similar way, the many people participate in community theater as volunteers. So I just wanna take a moment to shout out to all of our amazing volunteers, past and present, who make the walks possible. Casting the walks is one of the main reasons behind why a story might be included in the walks or not. So if we don't have someone to portray that person, we either have to come up with an alternative, as I said, or not include that story. If you're interested in volunteering with us, we need both cast and crew members every year for those non-actors. You know, a lot of people have, you know, if you got a wedding, then you can't participate that, that year. So uh, we need non-actors, we need actors, we need everybody. So we would love to hear from you. If I've inspired you to jump in with both feet, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Costumes, in my opinion, I'm almost done. I know I'm going so long, but I hope everything is, um, I hope everything is uh, enjoyable. Um, costumes, in my opinion, is the absolute most difficult thing about costumed interpretation. I can play a character or lead a tour and it doesn't matter how well I perform. If my costume isn't up to snuff, it rips the audience away from the experience. Uh, and it serves as a distraction. Luckily for us, our costume designers are excellent and we rarely run into any wardrobe malfunctions. At this point, I need to acknowledge two very important costume people. Kathleen Powell, of course, our curator, is an experienced costume interpreter herself uh, and also a, a wonderful seamstress sewing person. And also our amazing costume designer and magician extraordinaire creator, uh, Stanley Hickey. Stanley is a magician, as I mentioned, and so we are so lucky to have her on our team to make our actors look as fabulous as they do. Thank you again, Stanley. Uh, period costume is exceedingly tricky again, uh, because people already have an image of what a particular time period might look like, and that image is usually informed by popular culture. Downton Abbey, let's say, is a good visual example of this conundrum that we have. So Downton's clothing is top of the line, brand new, straight from Paris fashion uh, we're, uh, that we're used to seeing on fashion plates of the day. And that's because the family that's portrayed was upper class. But most people in St. Catharines are not dressing that way. Uh, so not to say they aren't stylish, but not everyone is rich or has access to good clothing or fabric. Not everyone is young and not everyone dresses according to the latest designs from Paris. So we can't just put actors in the same clothes you might be used to seeing on TV or in the movies. We have to pick and create items that are appropriate for the character, something they might not, uh, something that I might wear according to their age and occupation and place in society. We also have to make two other major consideration, take two, two other major considerations into account. September is usually hot. So we can't put the actors in winter clothing uh, and we have to try to build pieces without linings. A lot of patterns come with linings. Um, so I will <laughs> give you, I will reveal a big secret, behind the scenes secret. The white piece on Irene's costume here is actually just a dickie and she's wearing a tank top underneath so that she's nice and cool. She's not wearing a full shirt because it can get hot. Uh, the, the second consideration is that the audience is sometimes just a few meters away. And uh, there's, um, so unlike in traditional theater, um, you know, the audience is there for an extreme close-up 
and there's no options for sort of secret snaps or zippers or shortcuts, uh, something that you might find in a, a theater costume. Um, everything is visible. And so it has to be as accurate as possible. We don't go as hardcore as some of the costume interpreters at historic sites, like the ones at Dunder and Castle who wear five petticoats under their skirts. Um, but that's because the petticoats are part of their interpretation. So they actually talk about all the layers they're wearing. We're not likely to talk about our underclothings on the tour. As for props, well, it sometimes depends on what kind of vibe we're going for, for the tour. Sometimes we want our scenes to look like scenes on a stage filled with props and set pieces. This is challenging for us because we can't really go wild. We have uh, to bring everything with us to the cemetery and we have to take everything away afterwards. We, don't, we also don't have stage lighting. So that is always a consideration of how, you know, especially on this second weekend, it gets quite dark. So for our 2017 tours commemorating Confederation, we went all out because of the arc of the story that year, again, as I mentioned earlier, was that everyone was on their way to the July 1st celebration at Montebello Park. So we recreated the celebration that they had in 1867, served lemonade and cookies at the end of the tour to the audience. So uh, other years we wanted to, our, we wanted our actors to be nimble um, and for the spotlight to be on the gravestones uh, of the folks we were portraying. So very little props and sets, set pieces were involved. The wild card in running the tours is the ongoing logistical concerns, including weather, safety, vehicle traffic, group size, and the friendly neighbors. Weather is the most difficult to manage since we're outside and unfortunately we can't control incoming storms. Wind is also a very important factor since there are a lot of older trees in the cemetery and safety of our volunteers and our visitors is our priority. We've only had to cancel a handful of times, but um, it's never fun canceling and it's always a huge disappointment. We're often asked why we don't run the tours in October, which is traditionally more sort of spirit walk or ghost walk time. Unfortunately, the cemetery is technically closed to the public after dark. And because there is no lighting in the cemetery, it's quite dark and becomes unsafe for us to lead the tours. If we did the tours in October, we'd have to run them at 3 p.m. Um, or so. So as it is for now, the, uh, the sun goes down quite quickly, even especially on the second weekend of performances. So we're cutting it close these days uh, as it is. The cemetery is open to the public during the tours and the most and and most people access sorry access the cemetery by car. Uh, it can be a tricky business navigating um, navigating sorry it can be a tricky business navigating a car around a group or a group around a car. Uh, but after almost 10 years of doing it, we've figured out the best options for running the tour safely with both participants and regular visitors. And so we can't do it without all our awesome and patient tour uh, and traffic assistance. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Megan Louise, um, all of our uh, students who help us, Kent and Diane, Doreen, of course, uh, all of our awesome behind the scenes volunteers who keep us safe with their um, safety vests. I'm sure I'm not alone when I say I prefer a much smaller tour group. It's easier to lead as a guide, but it's also just easier to deal with. It's easier to hear, it's easier to see, <laughs> and the tour moves quite a bit faster and more smoothly with a smaller group, say um, 25 or 30. So we can ac accommodate up to 40, but we try not to turn people away. So we've had 45 sometimes on a tour, which just isn't as enjoyable as a 20 person group. On the other hand, the smallest group we've had, 
was a very rainy evening in 2015 with just three people. And that wasn't much fun either. <laughs> then there's our super friendly neighbors at the cemetery. Of course, they these are actual people who like live next door to the cemetery. Um, of course, they're living their lives. And it's always an extra level of comedy when sometimes they maybe choose a Friday night at 7 p.m. to cut the grass or maybe go through a bike ride through the cemetery. And it's just another fun part of doing interpretation in a public setting like Victoria Lawn. While many challenges exist in putting the spirit walks together, including historical accuracy, source material, location of headstones, and yes, the costumes, spirit walks are an excellent way to present a huge chunk of the past through narrative to an audience in an interpretive and enjoyable way. Aside from it being literal public history, history presented for the enjoyment of the public, the information, interpretation, and dramatization is always crafted in the most sensitive eye to accuracy, historical source material, historical narrative, and most of all, those historical persons who are being portrayed. From my early experiences with the Spirit Walk at Murphy's Point to this year, moving the Spirit Walks to a virtual format, I know that spirit walks have the unique ability to contextualize, provoke emotional and, intel in, and intellectual expansion, personalize and make accessible, difficult, sometimes dry, sometimes emotional historical events, um, people and narratives, because the reactions that we get at the end of the tour are exciting, uh, thankful, grateful, um, happy, sad, depending on what's going on. With both First World War tours, I was met with tear-stained faces at the end of the tour. In some cases, I am able to catch reactions of audiences during scenes, and it's extremely gratifying to have an audience react <laughs> the way you want them to. Since even the best interpreters can have a difficult time achieving uh, our grocery list of interpretive requirements, I think that these very special walking tours located in a very special place, examining some pretty poignant narratives has the power to not only convert the history haters to history lovers, but to change the way that all audiences take in their history. Hi, it's Adrian again. We really hope you enjoyed the lecture. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us via our social media channels or at museum at stcatherines.ca. More lectures are headed your way this winter, so don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find us under St. Catherine's Museum. For details and to register for the series, please visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Next time on VMLS via podcast, Ontario's racially segregated schools with very special guest historian and president of the Ontario Black History Society, Natasha Henry. The Virtual Museum Lecture Series is presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre.